Hi, and welcome to another episode of BTS Podcast. I'm your host, Lene Cook, and on this podcast, I talk to people about the behind the scenes of what they do. That's what BTS stands for. And as some people may know and may have noticed over the years, I like to have people on from a wide variety of careers. And one of those areas that I am going to continue to do a bunch of episodes on, this one included, is around civic engagement. If that's an area that interests you as well, I highly recommend going back and revisiting the episode with Philip Oconma on episode 34. He is a Los Angeles public defender. He's really terrific. I gotta warn you, the audio quality isn't great. I was having some mic issues that day, but it's not too bad. You should also definitely go back and listen to my interview with Cerise Castle, who's a freelance journalist. I'm going to have a lot more episodes coming up around community land trust, co-ops, different positions in the government, ideally waste management. I love to talk about waste management and also water. It's fascinating. More people should really know about it because uh, we're all dealing with it. In this episode, I was super excited to talk to someone who I've known and gotten to work with closely for a few years now, Sua Hernandez from El Sereno Community Land Trust. We talk about what a community land trust is, her job within the land trust, establishing rules. We talk about the difference between a community land trust and a co-op and a community development coalition. Is that the word? Let me check my notes. Oop, I was wrong. It's a community development corporation. So we talk about those things and building culture within the organization, ownership and decision-making properties, how she talks to her kids about the world around us and some of her reference points for redefining relationships of what it means to like asset manage a site where people are working towards a different balance of power, the importance of autonomy. And it was just such a treat to talk to her. I've seen her do a lot of public speaking and she is such a powerful speaker and I've seen her facilitate conversations and I have learned so much from her. So it was really great to be able to have her on and I wish we could have talked longer. Maybe we'll do a part two, time will tell. Anyways, thank you for listening. If you want to support this podcast, please do. You can go to anchor.fm slash BTS podcast and support for just 99 cents a month. That's like two stamps, maybe less. I'm not sure. I haven't bought a stamp in a while, but it's not that much money and it would be greatly appreciated. That's less than $15 a year. And every time I get a new contributor, it's super helpful. It helps pay for my Zoom. It helps like, you know, just with life. If you don't want to spend money, but you would like to use an affiliate link, there are links to the reading recommendations that Sua makes in the show notes. If you use those links, you'll be shopping through Bookshop, which supports independent bookstores, and you'll be using one of my affiliate links, which means that I'll get a little bit from your purchase. You can also use lcook61 and sign up for Hotel Tonight. When you use LCook61 signing up for Hotel Tonight, you will save on your next hotel stay. I love Hotel Tonight. I've been using it for years. 10 out of 10 recommend. I've included a few other links, including Rakuten and Honey, which are browser extensions that will give you promo codes and cash back on purchases. I get a couple hundred dollars back every year and it's great. I hate the shameless plugging. I really don't like it. It makes me feel very corny. So um, please make me feel better about it by using these links. Um, That's all. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks. I am so excited to have Sua from the El Sereno Community Land Trust on today. Sua has been working in affordable housing since the late 90s. Is that right, Sua? 
Yeah, yeah, as a kid. Wow, I, I imagine. Yeah, because I when I was, you know, preparing for this episode, I saw that and I was like, wait, how old is Sua? <laughs> I started doing the math and I was like, how is that possible? And uh, and you are the director of housing resilience and executive administrator at the El Sereno Community Land Trust. And we have worked together in various capacities over the past few years. And I have been wanting to um, have people on from a variety of land trusts and different community organizations. And so here we are. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for inviting. Yeah, of course. So I, I'll backtrack just a little bit for listeners because I think, um, you know, a lot of people in in 2020 kind of started to realize if they hadn't already realized in 2016 and hopefully before that engaging in our very local communities is really important. And I've seen the work that you do and, and several other folks at different land trusts and community organizations. And I think it's really important to talk about what exactly that work is, because I know a lot of people kind of go like, oh, I want to be involved, but I don't know what that means. Or like, they don't really know how to get involved in ways that are not related to a church or in ways that are not just donating money. And so I know that you got your bachelor's in urban and environmental policy at Occidental. Um, can you talk through a little bit how you started to get involved in community organizing? Yeah, absolutely. It actually goes back to like the housing origin story for me. So we, as a family, lost our housing when I was, you know, a kid. Uh, wow. a teenager really and um it was through that that my mom you know my parents were you know trying to get back on their feet and my mom went to community college and met a, a local organizer uh, Alicia Lepe who was working with uh, East LA Community Corporation at the time and um you know my mom you know he ha has like a background in accounting and at the time you know, Elac, East LA Community Corporation was just starting. Mm -hmm. And so Alicia Lepe invited my mom to the organization to support with some of this and help them sort of build their little bit of a, an accounting and organize them a little bit. It was way back when, you know, accounting was still done by one of the founder's father. Oh, okay, um, wow. and so, you know, through that, you know, at the time, we didn't really have many places to go, you know, because we were kind of bouncing around. Mm -hmm. So my mom would bring us to work with her um, and we'd, you know, kind of volunteer with her. Beautiful. And so at that point, um, we didn't ever get housing through ELAC, but I think what we gained was the language of housing justice and being able to kind of articulate what we had gone through as a family in a way that kind of removed us from the self-blame of the situation and helped us understand, you know, that uh, among our contributions to where we were, there was bigger dynamics that played into um, the situation we had found ourselves. And so I think it was a very reassuring space for my mom to be able to kind of gain back some of her dignity. Um, and for us to understand the bigger politics and resources and 
you know, I just kind of stuck with it since then. My mom moved to the Southern California Association of Nonprofit Housing, which is an advocacy. Sorry, did you say um, you cut you cut out for a second? Did you say you said that your mom did um, what with the the housing? She moved on to, for the Southern California Association of Nonprofit Housing. Uh, was there for almost twenty years. I kind of followed. Um, her a little bit into that, um, but just kind of stuck with organizing and housing as a place where I it kind of focused my energy in um, supporting the work. I ended up also at the Southern California Association of Nonprofit uh, Housing, SCAMF is what mm-hmm. it's called, and then worked there for a number of years before I ended up in college and, uh, uh, you know, urban and environmental policy. So, you know, I took a minute to get through college, but I kind of knew that this is, you know, when when I went and came back, this field was where I was going to apply my work. So I wasn't in that much of a hurry because I was already here. Yeah, definitely. Well, and, you know, I think, you know, the older I get, the more I feel like people rushing straight into college right out of high school and then finishing in four years and sort of treating that as the end of their education, like probably isn't like the best way for people to grow you know like now as somebody with a frontal lobe I'm like wow I would have gotten so much more out of my schooling if I was in school now or if I would have taken more time and if I wasn't in such a rush to like finish school because it really does beg the question like how I think a lot of especially in America a lot of people approach school as like a means to a paying job versus seeing it as like a place to experiment and grow and to really be there to learn. So I feel like I, you know, and I would like to think that if I didn't have to work full time at multiple jobs throughout college, like perhaps I would have like allowed things to sink in a little bit more, but I think I was in too much of a hamster wheel for that. So I do think that like it serves people to take their time with college if they, you know, if, if possible, like, you know, cause I know, you know, some, everyone has different circumstances when it comes to school. Um, and now like, I see my boyfriend going through a master's program, he's getting his MFA oh, and wow. I'm like, oh, I can see, yeah. And I can see why, like, you know, I see some younger people getting their MFA, like in their early twenties. And I feel like they, it doesn't hit as heavy for them as it does for someone in their thirties when you go back. Um, and so I'm kind of like, huh, I, I don't know if that's the, the best choice for everybody. Um, so, and with, um, ESCLT that you're with right now, did you, I'm under the impression, but maybe I'm wrong that you helped sort of start the land ESCLT in general. Is that correct? Well, I'm part of the founding staff. Um, and so that's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. The, the, so I'm part of the founding staff and I was a volunteer, but the process started way before I got involved, which was really the catalyst was the saving of the Eastside Cafe and the Caracol uh, from, mm-hmm. you know, from development. They were on the verge of getting kicked out of their spaces that they had had at that time, almost 20 years. And so they organized once they had the means to be able, the means and the partnerships to be able to, you know, they had conversations around like, what do we do? Cause we really, you know, Eastside Cafe Collective, they're not, you know, they were like not in, they were not in, in the place where they wanted to be landlords, you know? And so of course, yeah. through those conversations came the idea of a landlord. 
And so the way I came in was the purchase had already been done and um, the partnership with East LA Community Corporation had already been established. And I came into East LA Community Corporation as an asset manager. And my involvement with the Eastside Cafe and the Land Trust was really redefining the relationship with what it was to asset manage a site where mm-hmm. people were um, working towards like a different balance of power. And so I worked closely with Roberto to kind of establish roles and policies that were really different from what we were practicing at other properties. And, mm-hmm. you know, quickly became sort of, um, I kind of quickly understood what they were trying to do because it just was something that I had followed for a long time. And it was very easy for me to sit down with Roberto and be like, all right, this is how, this is how we can do this. And really, I think it really, before I came in, the asset manager that was there wasn't, uh, it wasn't as motivated to, to exercise a different form of, of holding power with, a, with, a, you know, with tenants. And And can you talk through what what that means? Because I think listeners, you know, I think the idea of a land trust, um, we can get into maybe later in the conversation, or I might, you know, because I know we're kind of short on time, I might explain that before, you know, before, like in the intro that I'll go back and pre-record. But can you explain exactly like, kind of when you're talking about that shift in power dynamics and um, not wanting a very typical, not wanting that like landlord tenant type of structure. Can you talk through like what that means? Um, I, I suppose as it pertains to ESCLT. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, all right. Land trust, let me just say is a sticker. You don't have to include this in the interview, but land trust is a sticker as is co-op as is all of that, right? They're just like the way that we mean a different structure of ownership. And in mm-hmm. this case, whether it be land trust or co-op, at the core of it is a dynamic in which the ownership is the ownership and decision making processes are 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 not held by one person or one entity, but are shared amongst the different people that are part of that legal structure. In a co-op, it could be the group of tenants that buy shares. And in a land trust, it's actually both the board that is made up of members of the land trust, community at large that have um, that are stakeholders and can have expertise, and then tenants themselves, whether they be commercial tenants or housing tenants. And so the board is made up of those sort of three um, different types of, of community members. And so they get to influence very directly through their membership, their vote, and, and the board, how the land trust implements the work that they do. It's a, different than, for instance, uh, a CDC, for instance. They will have some level of community involvement, but it's a little bit more at a distance. Sorry, what's a CDC? Oh, oh, Community Development Corporation. Oh, I see. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Yeah, like for example, East LA Community Corporation didn't have any tenants on uh, any actual their own tenants on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, 
for a land trust, that's part of the requirement for us that the Occidental Community Land Trust sets tenants need to be part of the board. Um, and so it's just a, a, a more direct pathway to have influence over the future of the resources that the entity holds. So that's like sort of the legal structure and how legally um, the the people that that use this, the land and and work the land that the land trust owns or the you know or you know somehow are involved in the care have just a a stronger way like a more clear um, way of influencing how the land is cared for and what people decide to do with it in the future. The core of it all in El Sereno mm -hmm. for El Sereno Community Land Trust. You know, it's a land trust, right? But at the core of the ideals of that the land trust holds is is this one specific one around autonomy. And the idea that in order for us to be able to be resilient communities and be resilient throughout, not just, you know, people that have the privilege to afford resilience. But, you know, even, even, you know, the most needy should have that opportunity. But in order to do that, right, everybody has to be able to have a way to live a dignified life by a dignified life, regardless of what type of income or how they sustain themselves, whatever sustenance. So, for instance, if I decide, okay, you know, Honestly, I love being home with my kids. I love being able to, to thankfully, like my current job allows me, but, mm -hmm. you know, if I decide I'm going to take an employment um, that maybe is minimum wage and I just want one and I want to work my 40 hours a week, but I want to be able, uh, once I step out of that space of work to go home and just enjoy life mm -hmm. and do with it what I need to. Or like, I'm a single parent and I need to only be able to work 20 hours because I want to dedicate time to, to being with and enjoying uh, parenting. And right. I should be able to and be able to like pay rent and be able to not be afraid of losing the haven that I so need, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's, and so then we come back to this concept of autonomy. We, we think that the, you know, the way that, um, the way that that happens is if I want to be able to do that on my own, everybody else has to be able to do that. So autonomy for us in practice means, yes, being able to be on our own, the same as sort of, you know, how Emma Goldman described, you know, what anarchism really means, the, the ability to do your own thing and have the 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 dignified um life that you that, that all humans deserve to be able to do that we all have to be able to have that so then comes in the collective work to ensure that right right and so the you know i'm sort of going in circles here but like that's um that's really, you know, autonomy doesn't mean just me on my own or, or you know, anarchism, just me on my own, kind of hanging out, doing my own thing and, you know, fuck the world. It means actually, no, there needs to be a collective effort 
so that we all have the resources and the dignified life and access to the resources that we need to have the dignified life to be able to practice autonomy, we have to collectivize our efforts to be able to create the systems that govern that 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 can that that um the systems that govern that actually can lead us as a society towards that you know absolutely it's just like a so much more healthy you know yeah if everybody has what they need you know I'm not going to be afraid of somebody's mental health episode potentially harming me um or I will be less afraid of that I I will not be concerned with you know my my neighbor is constantly leaving or or me constantly having to make a new set of friends or a new establish somehow a new community and and all the all the things that come with the backlash of 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 in the process being isolated because now you're in a new place and you have to you know do all these things and as you get older that cycle just wears on you more you know yeah I don't know absolutely. I'm 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 going in circles but you, no 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 I think this is a really good no, you're doing a great job of sort of like um narrowing in on specific ideas and deconstructing them which I think is a really important part of having this conversation and um, you know, I reached out to Amanda, who we both uh, know and have worked with, because I was like, you know what, Amanda will have good questions. And Amanda's questions were very uh, in line and sort of um, leaning on something that was on my mind, which is as you've been navigating this with your colleagues and with the folks who are a part of the land trust and, um, you know, finding out like where the land trust stands on this right because you guys are sort of creating these rules and not rules per se but you know standards and ideas where have you looked for inspiration as you thought about how you wanted to do things or, or how the the organization wants to do things differently oh you know what as a rule of thumb I always look towards Emma <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Goldman, but I also, you know, I grew up part of the time in Mexico City and um, more towards the late 90s. You know, my, my grandfather was a journalist and he, in the late 90s, things around Zapatismo and um, what indigenous Oaxacan communities were doing around autonomy was, was still sort of newer. Um, and at, at this point, my grandfather is like in his 70s, a little cynical, but so he would kind of be very, um, he would tell me about it, but more sort of like, we'll see kind of way. Yeah. Um, but he was definitely into what was happening. And so as I got older, you know, it, it just became sort of a, a point of reference for me of, of how people were practicing being able to have dignified lives. Um, outside of just this fear of constantly having to rely on external powers for it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so when I, I came to the land trust, I, you know, through ELAC, when I was first helping Beto, it was very easy for me to blend in because it just, you know, happened to be that the group of people, we said Cafe Collective and all the organizing happening there looked to... Um, 
what you know what zapatistas were doing and what indigenous Oaxacan communities were doing to to claim their dignified life you know to 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 have you know their humanness and so we continue to look at those examples as ways not only to practice um how we relate to each other, how we relate as landlords and as entities that hold land with community, but even things as simple as how do we practice our day-to-day -day care of a property? How do I relate to tenants um, on site and, and how, you know, or how do we uh, establish like an accountability, internal accountability thing for, for ourselves to be able to check in with each other about work? And so it's really infused at all levels of the way that we're trying to establish a culture within the organization and then um, how we then um, take that culture and move into it as, as we are engaging with folks outside of the organization. Um, so those are really where we, where we get a lot of our cues. Kukslehal politics is, is one of the readings that I think is really important within that. Perfect. And, uh, you know, for, for folks that are listening, I will uh, link to that in the show notes so that they can uh, dig in if they would like, as well as um, a few of the other, you know, a few other like Emma Goldman's work. I'm happy to link to that in the show notes as well for folks who are interested. Um, you know, as, as you were talking about this and you were talking about being a parent, how have you navigated conversations with your, because are your kids in like public school or do you homeschool them? Uh, they're in public school. So then how do you navigate? Because I imagine, you know, there's um, like, I think everyone experiences this, right? Like they they get to have their kids sort of raised the way they want them. And then their kids go to school. And I know like even just in seeing my oldest nephew, right? Like I'd never seen him whine until he started going to school and learned how to whine from other kids. And then it was like, oh, what's this thing that you're doing? You know, um, and so <laughs> with your kids, how have you navigated conversations with them as they're, you know, in school and and um, hearing different people's perspectives and things like that? Like, how have you talked to your children about uh, like your I don't know if like belief system is the right word, but like your values and um, and the way that you would like your children to see the world? Man, that's, it's been really tough. Um... So we intentionally didn't homeschool them because, you know, I have very little patience for it. <laughs> and, yeah. and I didn't want to fuck them up in the process. I didn't want to screw them over. So that and, you know, I thought if I if I keep them at home, I'm going to keep them in a bubble. And the reality is the world is as it is. And, you know, I just felt the need to expose them to so just like everything that they, they needed through public schools wasn't going to be met. I knew that. But one thing that was going to be met was exposure to kind of living outside of the bubble, mm -hmm. you know, and the understanding that they were going to face many instances and where people were just going to have different life practices and different views of life. And, and that's, I think, okay. It's, it's healthy. Um, it, it can sometimes be really hard when your views are so radically different, uh, but it, it kind of lends itself to healthy conversations and to question your own beliefs all the time um, to understand you're not always right. And, you know, I have really strong opinions, but I, I, I 
I'm, I don't mind changing my mind. And I think having exposure to people's different life experiences is really important. But the thing that has been extremely hard has been sharing with them the realities of racism, the realities of, you know, um, how even in a country like Mexico where people don't think racism is an issue necessarily at some levels and think of the dynamics being more classist than racist, racism infuses everything. Yeah. Um, it's been really hard because when we start having those kind of deeper conversations, I think especially my older one is kind of grasping some of that right now. I think it's very crushing for them. Yeah, it's, um, you know, they've they've gone through the past three or four years of a lot of anxiety. Um, and so I think just processing what the world has gone through the last three years has, has been a heavy toll for them. And to add all these other dimensions of of realities is, you know, in, in how we experience them through systems of patriarchy has been uh, just a cause of even more anxiety. Yeah. So I actually have have not been verbally like like verbally um, expressive about those things. I I have felt that the the best thing for me has been to expose them through uh, literature. Mm. Um, you know, I'm my oldest is about to enter the eighth grade. It's time for Howard Zinn. You know, I remember you know my grandpa introducing me to Howard Zinn at a young age. Uh huh. Um, so I thought, okay, it's time for Howard Zinn. I think, you know, pr- him being able to process it through reading at his own pace is he, he does, he, he can, he can kind of handle it a little bit better. Um, there are moments where we have had conversations about privilege and how, how much privilege he enjoys versus others. And he, he sometimes comes to the point of tears. So I definitely don't want to torture my kids with the information. I know that I may not be as good at being like age appropriate sometimes, you know, I could be kind of crude. Um, So I've stepped back and have been more like, okay, let's have some readings help. And then let's have my actions also help. Yeah. So like my mom, I bring my kids to work all the time. Mm. It's actually one of my favorite things to do because then they can learn by being there. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, one of the things about going to college that was hardest was that I learned very physically. Like I, you know, I can learn from a book and I can learn, but if I'm not, if I'm not doing as I'm learning it, it's like okay it doesn't stick well yeah because it's all theoretical you know like I think Mm -hmm. and I know sometimes when I hear people that think that they learn that way I do have to wonder like well how much of that is the life experience that you have to pull from you know um because I think you know it's it's so hard to learn in just these like conversations because I think um that like things make sense to us and then we're like but how do we do it right like if somebody somebody mm-hmm. could explain to me how to drive stick shift all day long that doesn't mm-hmm. change at I mean it gives me a better understanding of what exactly I'm doing with the clutch and with the gears and with the gas but until you feel that clutch start to release and the gas catch at the right timing and all that like it it doesn't 
it, like no book can teach you that feeling mm-hmm. if that makes sense mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. It's like, what is it? What is it in real life? Right. <laughs> like, what did you feel like? That's why I ended up at Oxy, I think, because they had a lot of theory verses in real life. It's like, uh, like their their curriculum was built a lot on that. So I thought, okay, that's why I need to go there. Yeah, definitely. But um, that's how that's how I'm translating that to the kids. It's you know, we spend a lot of time in Mexico City. Um, they, even within the time that they have gone, they've seen the changes that are taking place there. They have experienced having gone somewhere and then coming back and not seeing that place anymore and being like, oh, no. Right. So they finally are getting it. They're getting it. Um, so that's kind of a way. I think that if I talk to them, I'm way too intense. I literally am, you know, my oldest is almost 14 and I still make him cry. Well, you know, it's also different because you're their mom. You know what I mean? So like, I think, you know, when we hear stuff from someone that's not our parent, we, it, it gets internalized so differently than like the person that we're looking to, to like protect us. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, I was talking to one of my good friends who was on the podcast a few episodes ago and she works in sex ed. And she doesn't have kids and neither do I, but, and I'm not saying this, but as if it's comparable, but I am, you know, the oldest of probably like 30 cousins, you know? So I've seen, like, I have a few cousins older than I am, but they're like a decade older than I am. And then there's a 10 year gap and then me and then my little brother and like all of my little cousins. And so that being the situation, you know, I've been changing diapers since I was like fresh out of diapers. And, and I think, uh, as my friend has been talking through part of her working in sex ed is that she also talks to the parents of preteens and teenagers about how parents should talk to their kids about sex. And she brought up a question to me that was kind of like, she was like, well, I'm getting these parents pushing back on me, like not wanting to ruin their child's innocence, et cetera. You know, and I think there's a, every kid is different and that's so hard with every conversation. But to me, like, I think about my friends whose parents weren't as clear with them about like the world that we live in and how much more crushing that was to their innocence, right. To then have like experience a sexual situation and not know what they're getting into or experience racism and like not really understanding what's happening. You know, if you were raised somewhere, like someone who's close to me was raised in another country where like there just weren't really any white people. So the racism he had witnessed was more of colorism than it was, um, you know, like the difference between white and black. Um, And then he moved to New York and had a racist teacher and was just sort of told like, oh, yeah, that teacher's racist. That teacher never gives black kids good grades. And he's like that awareness wasn't there for him until he was 12 and what a way to find out but I don't you know but then it's like would it have been better if his mom would have let him know like hey I'm moving you to a country with racism but you know like this is why we're moving right like who knows what the like it's so complicated um yeah and so personal yeah it's probably so confusing yeah yeah it's probably so confusing I remember being a kid and being so confused many times and like, looking back, I do think a lot of it could have been resolved with my mom just being a little bit more open with information. Totally. Yeah. I mean, my mom was very open with information. Um, and I'm grateful oh, because, you know, and I think even like there's conversations we've had about my nephews because my nephews 
aren't white, you know, they're half white, half Mexican. And she's very aware that like them misbehaving is going to be a very different situation than when her white children misbehaved in school, you know, like the way that yeah. they're treated and the way, like the, the perceptions are so different. And so I think her, mm -hmm. you know, she obviously wants to shield my nephews from that as much as she can. So there's going to come a certain point, right, where she can't anymore. And that's also a conversation that like probably my brother and his wife should have with their kids at some point, right? Like it's not a conversation that like any brown kid wants their white grandma having with them. So like it's oh, right. But she was, she was very, I think I'm very grateful that with me, she was like very upfront about um, bodily autonomy and like from a very you know from like three years old letting me know you don't have to hug anyone you don't want to hug and I know for me that that has made my life experience at least with like my own physical body so much more empowered because I knew early on like what's mine is mine and like I don't owe anyone affection that I don't feel like giving you know, and like, no, oh, that's so good. It's so important. And I wish more people talk to their oh, kids yeah. about it because I know it's horrible to talk about or even think about, but like how much worse is it if you, if your kids don't know how to describe something that is happening or the, right? Like, yeah, mm -hmm. it's all just convoluted. Oh yeah, I did that with my kids. I did that with my kids and my parents hated it. Yeah. But you know what? It, it was necessary because I got to say, you know, yeah, her parents didn't like it either. You know, that were wrong. Yeah, but it's I went through some kids as a child that like no kid should go through, but yeah, you know, that was very important to me to make sure that my kids knew, like, hey, you know, if you don't even want to say hi, you don't have to say hello, just smile, like, just be cordial, but there's no need to go beyond. Yeah, you don't owe anyone that affection. Um, okay, so let's oh, sorry to derail you. I just think that, like, you know, when uh, I'm always really interested in how all of my guests are are managing parenting and stuff like that when they have jobs that are exposing them and their children to different parts of life or, you know, just it's everyone parents differently. And so I think that's and I love that you take your kids to work with you because I think it's such good exposure for them to see the way that like the way that you engage with other adults, right? Like knowing having those structures for what it means, like because and I can say this because I've seen the way that you engage with people is that you're so full of love and respect, but you also have like a very clear moral compass and like sense of fairness, for lack of a better word. Um, and so I've learned a lot just from watching the way that you talk to people. Um, okay, I'm going to ask a few more questions. because oh, I, I didn't realize that. <laughs> what's that? Well, I think you. I didn't realize that. You know, I was going to say one other thing that has helped a lot is um, that we're we're home during COVID, so a lot of my work interactions happen right in front of them in real time through mm -hmm. the way that we've been meeting lately because they were home too. Right. So yeah, being at work is nothing new for them. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I have one more question that I'll ask before my final question, which I ask everyone. But the one question that I wanted to ask was, um, and this was something Amanda was also interested in is, um, you know, when people hear about community land trust and co-ops, et cetera, there's a lot of questions that come up around how there's a framework for like when folks can't be contributing financially and, and how have you, and I, by that, I mean, folks that like live in, in part of the land trust, right? So like if I'm living there, but I don't have an income anymore and I can't pay, like you're in a position that like folks have to be thinking about what if someone's abusive and things like that? How have you navigated that kind of framework 
for the land trust. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so thankfully we haven't actually had to deal with that situation, specifically the one with non-rent payments um, or the inability to contribute to the housing financially. Um, but what I am looking mm. to is Beverly, Vermont's experience. Beverly, Vermont Community Land Trust has a no eviction policy. And, you know, we've had conversations about what it means to have a no eviction policy because a no eviction doesn't only include um, instances where, you know, a consideration of eviction could otherwise be made because of uh, non-payments, but it also includes this one thing that you hit on, which is the second piece is when somebody is creating a situation that is harmful. And, um, and so we have one site where we are currently um, managing, own and manage with, with tenants and it's, it's through our experience at that site and developing policies and procedures that we're, we're learning. Um, I come back to the experience mm -hmm. of Beverly, Vermont, where they have had instances where that no eviction policy, once implemented, has looked very different than what is idealized when written. And an example was... Right. A, an, an instance where someone was making it very difficult for others to enjoy their haven in a peaceful way. And they had this policy of no eviction. And so navigating how to approach was really difficult for them. And so one of the things that, you know, as we were talking became apparent that what was happening in that instance with the no eviction policy is that people were then choosing to self-evict because the environment mm. that the person had created just became intolerable for them. So rather than um, them having to go through more of it, they just decided to leave. And then the person that was actually creating the harm, the harm wasn't leaving because they had a no eviction policy. So they took that right. experience because, you know, we talked for a little bit around, you know, how we handled it. Because I have handled situations like that of, of instances where there has been an abusive partner who holds a lease um, at other places where I've managed. And so they, they, we were able to meet, Faisa called me because she thought, okay, you, you've asset managed before. How do you navigate it? And as we were talking, we really came to that realization where in practice this policy sometimes had the opposite effect so she then um or they decided to take the next step and bring it back to the board and make some modifications and so i'm really learning in real time from 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 beverly vermont and from them is how they're moving and you know i will check in with faisa once in a while about how it's going um not in a very formal way um, but, you know, we we are learning from people that are kind of walk the path a little bit longer than we have. Uh, thankfully, at this at this time, we haven't had to implement anything right away. Um, now, when it comes to non-payment of rent, that's something that we, I think, still, you know, we're only three years old and we've only kind of owned a, a, a building with tenants for, you know, half of that time. And so we haven't, again, been challenged with that, but, you know, there have been a couple of instances where folks haven't paid. 
And so what I did is when I first came onto the property, we did have some gaps in rent payments. Um, but I also knew that people had recently lost jobs. There was households that were, there was one household in particular, a senior household who on, on her own, an individual senior, she had lost her long-term employment um, and had one of the highest mm -hmm. rents in the building, one of the highest rents in the building. And so wow. she, you know, what I did just sort of like, okay, this isn't a policy, but, you know, we have to sort of approach this in a really, you know, and just a really caring way was I knew that I had to go through the process of, of, of qualifying tenants for rent reduction so that they could participate in affordable housing and then I could adjust their rents to their current um, income. So what I did was get on that as quickly as possible after purchasing the property. And, you know, kind of without really voicing it too much or without really kind of making too much of a deal out of it, I kind of just almost clean slate, clean slated everybody. So like the owner had given mm. me a rent roll in which, you know, he had a couple of people owing a bunch of back rent and he had, you know, and so what I did, it was like, you know, let's, let's make this, you know, people are not in the position where I don't even know if they can process the fact that they're in, in debt right now because they were going through a lot of hardship. So I kind of just took the opportunity right. that, Hey, you know, we're redoing the way we, collect uh, or we're redoing the way that people contribute to their rent. We're going through this process where we're adjusting your rent to fit your household needs. Um, let's just start from here. <laughs> and so that's what we did. Right. That's what that's we did. Beautiful. And you know what? I think people were just super taken aback, super grateful if they had been saving money. You know, we, we didn't ask a lot of questions, but we haven't really had rent defaults in the building um, since. And the couple of times that people have defaulted on rent, I haven't really called them on it, but they, you know, within a few days of, of late, you know, of them being um, in need of paying, they'll pay. You know, I, I don't have to worry about it too much right now. I think over time, we yeah. will have to grapple with that. You know, once we're a little bit- Yeah, well, it's inevitable, I think for, you know, yeah, once well, we're a little bit more mature, you know, because the other thing is, you know, it, it it has to be somewhat of a balance because, you know, it costs to care for a building is 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 quite pricey, even just to maintain the very, you know, at the very minimum, even just plumbing. And so if you have too many people that you are that are not contributing financially to the care of the building through their rents. Um, or their monthly payments, the whole building is going to suffer. And it's one thing to just offer housing, but you know, the thing is you want to offer dignified quality housing. You don't, don't want to end up in a situation where the building is in such disrepair that, you know, you know, it's almost that, you know, there could be a lot of building safety issues over time. It's just not gonna, it's not going to balance. I mean, even just the mental health impact, you know, sometimes like I'll see my boyfriend do stuff sometimes that I'm like, why'd you put cologne on your home alone? And he goes, oh, because, you know, it's good for morale. And I'm like, oh, that's a good point. You know, like I think having windows that open and close that are clean, you know, that like 
coming home to a building that's not overgrown and there's nothing boarded shut, like it really does impact your overall health. And I know that I know that you have to go. The last question that I ask everybody is what is something that you would want to hear a future episode of the behind the scenes podcast about? You know, I really want to understand. I really want to understand a little bit more. I actually, you know, this new mayor that we have, Hmm. it's really interesting because theoretically based on what they look like, we should be happy, you know, because they're representing the gente, you know, but I want to understand the behind the scenes of the behind, I don't know, I don't even know, I think it's too big uh, for a podcast. So, you know, I was going to say the behind the scenes of of how people set themselves up a career to end up being a mayor, you know, because it just feels like, it just feels like by the time you're in a position like that, you owe so many favors that it almost doesn't matter what your own personal ideals are or what you, you know, maybe practice at home. You cannot actually move into those as in that position because you just owe everybody is it like, is it, is it like your ideals change in the process and you're cool with sort of doing the wink wink or, you know, it's just yeah. like, you know, the mayor came in and where the, it was just, and I don't know if I'm just at this point having a different relationship with the way that I interact with electeds. No, but I, think you're, different, I think you're on spot. I think you're right on target. Yeah. So I agree but with you the, completely. Yeah, and the different spaces that she's in and the different um, influences that she has, like, for instance, the United to House LA commission, like, a com- you know, that committee, um, you can you can immediately tell who she's doing favors for, because yeah. it's just like, oh, there's like three people representing from the same organization on this committee who she also happens to be buddy buddy with of this, you know, person that runs it. It's just you know, is it at one point, like the behind the scenes of of how that happens so blatantly. And like, we're just over here thinking like, oh, this is a fair and democratic process, but it's really not. (laughs) It's really not, you know, and to your point, I, I often wonder how much of it is like, how much did it take of them sort of doing all that stuff and uh, playing sort of political frogger to get in the position to be elected. And then how much is like, then they get elected, and then they're told, oh, this is how elected officials behave, because sometimes I look and go, but if they spent as much time doing the work as they do campaigning, like, they might get more done. Um but then I also wonder how much of it is like the the people that they originally opposed, right? It's easy to say, you know, Rick Cruz is a great example, right? It's easy for us all to go like, I, you know, we don't like him. We don't like his politics. And it's one thing when I see activists who've like uh, scolded Rick Caruso as he walks down the street or whatever. But when you're in the position that suddenly you're at the same dinner table as Rick Caruso, right? Mm-hmm. People get humanized. So you're not, you know, you're, you're, what do you really like? Because then it, is it also then the right thing to sit across on the table and be an asshole to somebody? Like, I don't know if that's right. Cause I do struggle with like accountability and then also leading with like compassion and grace and love. Like sometimes those feel in conflict and who wants, so I do often question like, oh, how much is it? Is that like the people they once saw as enemies, they are now seeing as full people 
and not holding them accountable and not staying true. Yeah, it. I agree with you. Yeah. I would love to do that. And I think this is like step one of me doing that is me talking to like more community-based organizations. And I think moreover, I want to talk to someone who was a politician and is now out of it so they can be honest. <laughs> yeah, like how does that work? Like how does that, that person that clearly is doing something that at one point you, some publicly verbalized was awful and now you all are sitting on the same team how does that happen yeah. what happens in the process is it just like you come to the realization well you know that's my job um I don't know I just think like in, in this role I have had to engage with politicians at a level that I hadn't before because I had kind of protected myself you know I know the spaces that are not healthy for me and among souls are spaces where people play a lot of politics. Right. I just feel like I'm just too trusting or I don't know what it is. Maybe I think I'm almost maybe too naive or don't understand conceptually what um, what superficial relationships that don't seem superficial are. Like, I don't know, you know, and so I, I tend either. to get... Yeah, I tend to get very hurt in those spaces. Like, I, I, I really do feel like the pain of, wait, yesterday you, you, you were agreeing with me. Yesterday you said this was great. Like, and let me give you the example of like, um, you know, I followed Kevin DeLeon's campaign, um, a, a political uh, career for a while. Mm -hmm. um, I remember in college feeling like, oh, yeah, because, you know, he brought out policies that really, you know, tried to reduce arms going to Mexico. And I remember a lot of the times when I was hearing about politics or policies, it was pretty clear he was somehow involved, either as a co-author or an author or had voted yes. And I thought, you know, this guy, he's, you know, I think he's got, I think he's, there's something about him, right? Mm -hmm. And as time progressed, you know, I, I don't know him personally, but once you kind of find someone that in that political realm, you know, it's so hard to find that one person you think, oh, yeah, they, they might do good. Oh, as their career progresses, it's like they're taking those values with them. It, it was so painful for me to watch the downfall. And then not only that, to then personally experience his his dislike and, and and, and despise of the people that we work with you know it was just like such a painful reality for me to think that at one point I thought this was a, a, a decent human being that was able to get past all the political um like sh sugar coating and was really truly implementing ideas and laws that were really helpful and and were full of ideals what happened Right. No, I think it's a great question. I, I, yeah, I, I really think it's a great question, not only for people to understand as they like put their faith in politicians, but I think it's also psychologically important for people to understand in their own lives, whether they're politicians or not, or aspire to be, because I'm like, what happens that makes someone lose the, um, the checks and balances in their life that keep them constantly questioning, like, how can I do better? What, you know, where, what am I missing? Because that's 
a lot of what it seems. Yeah, it, it is interesting, right? Like, do, do they get jaded or do they get sort of lost in the sauce and like in this hamster wheel? Like, I I question the same. I really love that answer. Um, well, thank you so much, Sua. This was wonderful. I know you have another meeting, so uh, so you have to jump, but I really appreciate it. And I'm going to put um, links to the Land Trust Twitter and Instagram in the show notes so that people can follow, follow along and also link to the reading materials that you recommended. Thank you so much for being on. Oh, I appreciate thank you. it. Thank you so much, Lenny. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of BTS Podcast. I'm so glad Sua was able to take time out of her day to have that conversation. I look forward to having many more conversations with folks from Community Land Trust to better explain what a land trust is, what they do, and for folks who might be working with land trusts or co-ops and getting ideas for how they want to run their organization, check out some of the reading recommendations that Sua made. There will be links in the show notes. When you use those links, you'll be supporting this podcast and independent bookstores. I'm a big fan of bookshop. I might even put together a little list from this episode and other civic engagement episodes. Speaking of which, go back, listen to episode 34 with public defender Philip Oconma. You can learn what a public defender does, what they're faced with, and about their work. It's really important. We talk about bail. We talk about just a lot of things that like people might not understand about the arrest process. And here comes my least favorite part. Please support this podcast. You can support this podcast at just 99 cents a month. And it really, really does help. If you're like, hey, I don't want to support this podcast, but I do want to help you out, just not with money. That's great. Please subscribe, rate, review, share this with a friend, share it in your newsletter, whatever makes you happy. But if you do want to support it 99 cents a month, there's links in the show notes. It's just anchor.fm slash BTS podcast. You can also use some of the services that I link to, including Hotel Tonight, which is my favorite way to book hotels. I love a reward system. I'm a sucker for them. Yes, they do get me. So use lcook61 when you sign up for hotel tonight. Not only will you save on your booked hotel stays whenever you decide to book a hotel, but I have found their reward system to be more rewarding than, you know, just like a regular old Hilton Honors or Expedia or whatever. I'm also a big fan of Rakuten where you can get cash back on purchases that you're already making. It's a Chrome extension. There's also a really great app. Download it using my link. You'll get money. I'll get money. You'll get cash back. I get a couple hundred dollars back every year because I use it almost every time I shop. Anyways. Thank you for listening. Find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Find the El Sereno Community Land Trust on Twitter, on Instagram. Find your local land trust. See what how you can help. Tell people about land trust. They're an important part of the world. I am hoping, because I've been in Maine for the last month, I'm hoping to have someone from a land trust here because theirs seems to be doing a lot of really incredible work that I would love to see recreated in other places. Anyways. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.